This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I'm really excited. Candace Millard is here, and you know her name from River of Doubt and Destiny of the Republic and Hero of the Empire. Her new book is River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. You know these adventure stories. These are the perfect mix of travel and history and nature writing, which we're going to come to in a minute. But Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Miwa. Thank you so much for having me. It's really going to be fun to talk. Oh, I can't wait. So River of the Gods, let's set this up for listeners because it's brand new, but there's so much great writing in this book. Oh, thank you. Well, this is sort of one of these epic stories. These three men struggle to solve one of the greatest mysteries in the history of human exploration, the search for the source of the Nile, which have been going on for thousands of years. But Really, it's about human nature, which, you know, while everything else changes, human nature always stays the same. So this is a story that gets into genius and mediocrity, courage and cowardice, ambition and envy, deep, deep, resentful, simmering, bubbling over envy and friendship and betrayal. So, and it all is sort of plays out in East Africa, which is staggeringly beautiful, kind of the hallowed halls of the Royal Geographical Society in the the 19th century. So we have three sort of main characters. There's a young Scotsman, There's Sir Richard Burton. (laughs) (laughs) Then they also have a guide called Siri Mubarak Bombay. So let's start with Speak, the young Scotsman. If you know Burton, Speak is basically everything Burton is not, and Burton is everything Speak is not. They're complete opposites. So Speak is what Britons sort of imagined their heroes to be, right? So he's blonde and blue-eyed. He was born into the aristocracy, raised in this mansion. He is a lieutenant in the British Army. He loves to hunt, and he seems kind of you know, quiet and unassuming, but he actually has this very, very deep rooted ambition and insecurity. And when he meets Burton, there's this immediate envy because Burton is famous and Burton is brilliant and Burton has already accomplished all of this. Burton's about seven years older and he's already accomplished so much. And he is the commander of this expedition, which is what Speak wants to be. And so very quickly, this envy grows and grows. And there are all these little sort of unintentional things that Burton does that offends, deeply offends Speak. And Speak doesn't tell him, but he lets it kind of fester, right? Until it finally comes out and it nearly destroys both of them. Burton also, his background, I mean, he's got an extreme facility with languages yeah. I mean, to the point where he speaks dialects that not a lot of folks outside of those particular territories or countries speak. Right. He's also a very accomplished writer. He's an accomplished speaker. Right, right. A lot of folks have invested in Burton. And then a lot of folks also don't quite care for his confidence. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. So Burton is a difficult character, as most kind of geniuses are, right? He's deeply flawed. So yes, he spoke more than 25 different languages. You know, he was the first Englishman to enter Mecca disguise as a Muslim because his Arabic was flawless. But he deeply studied every religion, every culture, and respected none of them. He was just a character, one of these people you get once in a century. And he was always considered an outsider in England. You know, he wasn't an aristocracy. In fact, he was kind of British in name only because he'd been born in England. His parents were British, but he had grown up on the continent, right? He'd moved 18 times before his 18th birthday. I mean, he just moved from France to Italy to Greece, picking up these languages and cultures along the way. And to many Britons, he also didn't really look British, right? So he had these black hair and these black mesmerizing eyes. And even Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, <laughs> met Burton before he wrote Dracula and was just obsessed with him. And he describes his gleaming canines, you know, <laughs> and it's just fascinating. So some people think, understandably, that Burton was maybe the inspiration for Dracula. Burton doesn't mind being famous either. I mean, this is <laughs> no. this is a moment in world history where explorers are rock stars. Right. Yeah, they absolutely are. So the Royal Geographical Society was founded in the 30s, right? And so Charles Darwin was a member, David Livingston, all these famous people. But then it started, so it was kind of struggling in the 40s to get, they had, you know, these very aristocratic members, but like nobody was paying their dues and things. And so they're trying to find ways to get people to be more interested and involved. And so they start to shift from the scientists to these explorers who, as you say, are really the rock stars of the era. You know, they're going out to all these places nobody knows about and coming back with these incredible stories or not coming back at all. <laughs> and so everybody wants to hear them and wants to hear them speak. Of course, everyone knows about Burton. But again, he's difficult, right? He's kind of, this is a very puritanical age, right? And Burton is interested in everything including sex. He's very interested in sex. He wants to write about it. He wants to study it. And that makes Victorian England very uncomfortable. He is one of the first translators of the Kama Sutra. He is. And, yeah. You know, towards the end of his life, basically, <laughs> even his wife is kind of like, oh, he's a pornographer. What do I do with this? Well, very much his wife, who was very, very religious, very devoted to him, but so upset about these translations. And so we have these two speak for all of his ambition. And yes, he is a little quiet on the surface. We've got two really big personalities and yeah. two really big egos. Yeah. Yes. And they're sort of destined to clash, but there's a third party that we need to talk about. Yeah. City Mubarak one day. So when they first, they go to Zanzibar, which was just off the coast of East Africa, what is today Tanzania, was the setting place for most of these explorations into Africa. They meet there actually just on the coast, on the Tanzania coast, they meet this man named Sidi Mubarak Bombay. Bombay really becomes very quickly the heart of this expedition and really in many ways the hero of this expedition. So Bombay is a formerly enslaved man. He had been kidnapped as a child from his village in East Africa. He had been sold for cloth in Zanzibar and taken to India where he was enslaved for 20 years. When the man who owned him died, he was given his freedom and he made his way back to East Africa 
America. And it's just really incredible. You know, when Burton and Speak meet him, they are hiring a bunch of people for this expedition that has, you know, 150 or more people. And they just immediately are like, what do you, what, what can we give you so you will go with us? They just understand amazingly. And what was interesting about Bombay to me Yes, he was incredibly skilled. He spoke many languages and he was really, really good with, you know, negotiating with the other porters and things and keeping them going. But he was incredibly honest. He was incredibly brave. He was incredibly hardworking and he never wanted anything for himself. And what is amazing to me is that he had the biggest heart. I mean, everybody who talks about him and many people do, they talk about how generous he was and how kind he was. And you think, how is that possible after being stolen as a child, everything you know, ripped away from you, enslaved for 20 years, and then you somehow emerge from it, this incredibly kind and generous and patient person. I don't know how that happens, but it did happen with City Mubarak Bombay. He's also... A bridge between Burton and Speak in a lot of ways, yeah. because Speak really doesn't trust Burton. And no. Bombay hasn't chosen sides or anything quite like that, but Speak really relies on him. And as they yes. are on the trail, well, without giving away too, too much, though, we are going to talk a little <laughs> bit about some of the details, because right. wow, how these guys stayed alive. <laughs> I know. I know. How they no, stayed you- alive. Is amazing. I know. It does make you just like incredibly grateful for just the simplest things, you know. And it's yeah, an extraordinarily difficult journey that lasted almost two years. They faced everything you can imagine. I mean, the strangest, most terrifying diseases, you know. Both men were nearly blinded. Burton was so ill from malaria that he was paralyzed could not walk for almost a year, couldn't even use his hands to write. And he was constantly writing. That's part of who he was. Couldn't hold a pen. You know, one night there is attacked by a horde of beetles and flies <laughs> into his ear and just starts burrowing deeper and deeper and deeper into his ear until he's going insane. And so he's trying oil, he's pouring in, he's melted butter, you know, anything to try to get it out. And finally, out of desperation, takes a pen knife and sticks it in his ear and yes he kills the beetle and it sort of slowly comes out in bits and pieces over time you know in the wax with leg or <laughs> but he's deafened for the rest of his life in that ear so and the things that they faced and they're you know constantly a millimeter away from starvation they're exhausted and they're frightened and earlier on they had been attacked one night when they were in Somaliland on just a very earlier expedition and one of their expedition was killed. Speak was kidnapped and stabbed 11 times. Amazing that he survived. And Burton had a javelin thrust into his jaw, sticking out from cheek to cheek, sticking, you know, severing his palate, knocking out all these teeth. And for like an hour, he has to walk around with this javelin stuck out of his face. And that leaves him with this incredible scar that makes him seem even more kind of sinister and suspicious than he had before. So yeah, it is extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult expedition. And really, Bombay is the person who keeps them all together and keeps them sane. Somehow their supplies were not well planned. They didn't really have what they needed. And then as they resupplied, they didn't get what they needed again. They kept Well, a lot money. of it 
Right, right. A lot of it was they just couldn't bring it with them from the Mm -hmm. coast because they didn't have enough people and donkeys to carry everything. You know, what they relied on people who were coming from the interior, right, with ivory and with slaves to trade in this huge monsoon season and all that was delayed. They just couldn't find people. And also a lot of people didn't want to work for the Europeans, these white people coming in, they didn't trust them. And so even when they had people, a lot of times people would desert, you know, either either they'd just like, it wasn't worth it, it was so difficult or it was so dangerous, or they would also see Burton and speak again and again and again near death themselves, you know, and thinking I'm never going to be paid. So it was really hard to find people and to keep people. So obviously we have the characters, obviously we have the action, obviously we have this wonderful narrative. But part of what got me as I was reading too is this idea that they were undergoing this incredibly dangerous project. Mm -hmm. And the rewards would be there. I mean, certainly they were not just doing this because they needed something to do for two years. That's that's not at all. (laughs) This was not Tuesday. I think we'll go for a walk. Yeah, not a vacation. (laughs) <laughs> but this is also a moment, too, where the Royal Geographic Society is sort of pivoting from their scientific mm-hmm. base into this idea of exploration, because as I mentioned earlier, it was the thing. It was like, you know, when mm-hmm. we were sending people into space, the equivalent right. of the astronauts in the 60s, really. And certainly there are other examples. But the Brits controlled so much of the world at mm-hmm. that point, mm-hmm. you know, through various entities, whether it was the British government or the East India Company or what have you. Mm-hmm. And they all sort of had this attitude that, well, you know, until we map it, it doesn't really exist. Right. I mean, that that kind of sums up the British Empire in a (laughs) minute right there. I know, I know, exactly. This idea of discovering the largest lake in Africa, the second largest freshwater lake in the world, you know, and we're going to discover it and we're going to name it after our queen. (laughs) Even though all these people who live there and who use this lake and who for everything you can imagine. But yeah, no, it was obviously just incredible incredible arrogance for the time. But what started it all, what I found really interesting is because, you know, before this, it was Europeans were all about Rome and Greece, right? And so we are going to learn those languages and we're going to try to copy them. And they're just this obsession with Rome and Greece. And then very end of the 1800s, when Napoleon was in Egypt fighting the British, they found the Rosetta Stone, right? And they're going to now unlock and they're like, oh, wait, this is an even older civilization. This is even a richer civilization. We want this. <laughs> and so the Britons were like, no, we want this. And so all the Europeans are fighting for it. And so they want to know, obviously, as much as they can and to appropriate as much as they can about ancient Egypt. They also want to understand what makes it work. And that's the Nile, right? So this Egypt is largely desert, right? It's the Nile that brings it life. And so to understand, okay, and for millennia, people have been saying, okay, we'll start at the Mediterranean Sea and we'll ascend, but they were hitting these swamps and nobody could get anywhere. And so it was after they found the Rosetta Stone and everyone's really obsessed with Egypt now. And they're like, okay, okay, let's take another tactic. Let's start below the equator. Let's start on the East Coast, well below the equator and go inward and try to find. And there have been all these rumors about, oh, there's this lake region, right? What is it? And they, somebody, these German missionary explorers came up with this really strange map, right? The slug map. (laughs) And it's, they just drew this giant, giant lake in the middle of East Africa. And they said, we think this is the source of the Nile. So Burton and Speak get in there and Bombay 
and they start moving along and they're meeting people and they're being told, no, there's not one huge lake. There are three of them. And so Burton thinks it's got to be the Tanganyika, which is, you know, Western Tanzania, today Tanzania, and is incredibly, incredibly long, incredibly deep. It's, it's like, 4,500 feet deep. It's incredibly deep. And he's sure that's going to be the source of the Nile. We're staying away from sort of the last little bit (laughs) of the book because there is so much more that happens. But I wanted listeners to really sort of understand how much happens very (laughs) early on before we even get to the stuff that really, shall we say, pops. Yeah. (laughs) But for you as the writer, and certainly this isn't the first kind of epic historical travelogue that you've done. I mean, we're mm-hmm. going to come back to River of Doubt, your book about Teddy Roosevelt and the Amazon. But how do you build a book like this? You're balancing the personalities. You're balancing mm-hmm. what was known, the bits you're looking for. I mean, is this kind of a little bit, you know it when you see it? I mean, you were with National Geographic for a number of years before you started writing books. Right. I was. And in fact, that's where I first heard the story about Burton and Speak and their, how different they were and this enmity between them. And so I was always fascinated with their story. So it just was kind of in the back pocket for a long time. But then I started researching it and I found City Mubarak Bombay and then it all made sense. You know, it all. And also then I was like, okay, I really want to tell this story because I'm really interested in him. And also I hope that we're finally at a point where we can just admit, let's just admit it was like who really made these (laughs) expeditions happen? Yes, these guys were brilliant and they were brave, but nothing would have happened in these explorations anywhere in the world without the local people who helped them find food and water and helped them get there, you know, were guides and were nurses and were negotiators. I mean, they're just incredibly, incredibly important. So to the extent that I could, I really wanted to tell that story as well. And so I had the great joy and privilege of going to East Africa and really getting to see where the story played out and and go to Zanzibar. And it was in the market where Bombay was sold, et cetera, et cetera. It was just this incredible experience. So I began actually, so, you know, it takes me about five years usually to write a book. 80% of that is research and structure. You're talking about building a book. So a lot, a lot of my work is outlining and organizing. And so I went to the UK early on, did research in Scotland at the library, at the National Library there, did research in London, the Royal Geographical Society, Royal Asiatic Society, the British Library. Fun, fun, fun. It was so interesting. I even went, well, okay, I won't give it away, but the big... (laughs) shocking part at the end I was there as well which was really incredible and still the same family and everything anyway that was incredible you know what I was really looking forward to was going to East Africa it's difficult to do that you know it's expensive it's far I have three children who were younger at that time my oldest is now in college but everybody was at home at that time so anytime I would go on a research trip or a book tour my parents come to stay so it took me a couple of years to just find a time when I could go and they could come and everything was fine well it just so happened that we landed on February of 2020 (laughs) that is when I went and it was kind of late February and I didn't know. I mean, there wasn't much in the United States at that time. Of course, everybody's aware of it, but I remember having a conversation with my son and him saying, is this a pandemic mom? And I was like, no, 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 this is not a pandemic. So anyway, I went um, to Kenya first 
And then Zanzibar, which was just everything that you can imagine. You know, you think of this magical world and it is like every color, every sound, every smell is just like, you're just steeped in it and so much history. And then I was in mainland Tanzania, across to Big uh, Tanganyika in the West, and then up to in Nyanza, which we now know as Lake Victoria. So it was really an incredible, incredible trip. How do you physically travel between those lakes? I mean, obviously, we are 150 years past when this first expedition went out. I have not been to Africa. I'm assuming that there are a lot more paved roads than there were. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Obviously, it's Mm -hmm. a lot more, much, much, much more developed. But it's still, I mean, there's still large, large, large spans that are largely not populated and yeah, just empty. So it's difficult. And like I said, it's expensive. So a lot of what you have to do is you you have to get charter flight because it's, you're covering thousands of miles. I mean, it's just so it's just so far and, and you don't have much time. So you, not only was I trying to figure out time with my family, but I was also trying to plan this because you've got one shot. When you go there, you need to make sure you can get what you need and you can meet the people. And so you have to hire somebody who will help you, you know, and make these introductions, help you get where you need to go and just planning everything. And it's really complicated, you know, but it's just an, just an extraordinary experience. Really. I can't, you know, it is definitely the best part of the job. (laughs) All of your books are very heavy on the research. Obviously your last book was the Churchill in Africa during the Boer War, <laughs> which is a side of Churchill that not a lot of us had seen until your book. And then previous to that was the Garfield assassination book, which mm-hmm. the assassin actually would not have killed him. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> but you started with River of Doubt, and this is Theodore Roosevelt. He has been defeated. He has a little bit of time on his hands. There's been a lot of death in his family, and he's trying to figure out what's next. And he decides to go to the Amazon. and. When did he go again? 1914 and then to 1915. So quite a while after Speak and Burton and Bombay right. are making their way through East Africa to the head of the Nile. But right. his story is not dissimilar in a lot of <laughs> There's a little bit of ego involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might say ego. that. Yeah. And, you know, at least he's got someone locally to help as well because it's really... Roosevelt and his second son, Kermit, and mm-hmm. a local guide and someone else. But at the time, you were still at National Geographic, right, when you started that book? Well, I left to oh, okay. write this. Yeah, I was moving from Washington to Kansas City. Okay. And yeah, when I got the idea, when I you know, wrote the proposal, I was at National mm-hmm. Geographic. So when did you know that Roosevelt's story needed to be a book and not a magazine article. I mean, you can see sort of where I'm going with this question because a lot of your work, some of it could start as a magazine article. Right. I love the books, but (laughs) how do you know when to make that shift? So I'm working at National Geographic. I absolutely love it. It was so much fun. And I had worked really hard to get that job. Then I got married and I'm going to move to Kansas City. And I think you know, I love Kansas City, but what can I do that I love as much? And it was actually my husband who had been a reporter for the New York Times for years. And he was like, you should write a book, which seems 
when you've never written a book seems so audacious and ridiculous. Like, well, who do I think I am? I can write a book, you know, but what's interesting to me, yes, every book I've written, it's very narrow, right? And it's not like I, you know, I don't write cradle to grave biographies. I don't write full, full histories. I try to dig in really, really deep. And it's what I love about writing. And it's what I love about reading, right? When you can take a story and really dig in, right? Really get to know these characters, really get to know this event. So for instance, with Roosevelt, this trip that he took on this unmapped river in the Amazon and there's death and, you know, there's attack and Roosevelt nearly killed himself. But if you look at most biographies of him, and there are a lot of biographies about Theodore Roosevelt, a few paragraphs because it's after his active political career, right? And people think, okay, yeah, yeah. And also he did this, you know, but if you look at it deeply, it's fascinating. And it's also incredibly illuminating about him and about this time in history. So that's what I love to do. So I set out wanting to write a book, but this story was a gift to me. Somebody said, oh, have you heard about this trip? And so I start doing research and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's got everything I want. And I can talk about the Amazon. I can talk about evolution. I can talk about natural history, which I've been steeped in for six years at National Geographic. One of the things I love too about that book and the way you can sort of you as the writer. In your research too, where you say, well, I went to the Amazon and here's Theodore Roosevelt thinking, oh, he's just going to feed himself by shooting right. the animals. <laughs> and he hadn't taken into account the fact that the animals have adapted to their environment right. and they know how to hide. So they don't get eaten. No, they're so people. much better at it than he is. You think, oh, he's this hunter, right? And even Rondon, the Brazilian who's with him, who had spent his life, you know, right, trying to map the Amazon. He's star. everybody's starving. Yeah. And when I went there, when I went to the Amazon, I'm like, oh, I get it. You are being eaten alive by insects, right? But anything that you can eat, good luck. You know, it's very, very difficult to find it, much less kill it. And that's so much these physical constraints, whether it's gear or money or Mm -hmm. time or people, all of these things. Somehow folks like to leave those out of the story. (laughs) When you look at, you know, Burton's account of things or Roosevelt's account of things, certainly they're just kind of like, well, I went and I did the thing and I conquered and I did. Right, right, right. They don't like to show the struggle too much. Yeah, it takes away from the image. (laughs) The pedestrian parts, the really dangerous pedestrian parts. And for you as the writer, though, how do you balance the needs of the story? Because obviously, you are bound by facts in a way that you wouldn't be if you were writing a novel. Right. You still need to think about narrative pacing, because that's one of the Mm -hmm. pleasures of reading your work. It just never stops moving. (laughs) Thank you. But at the same time, there's a level of detail, there's a level of character development. And Mm -hmm. I use character development, even though we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Historical people. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. You still need to bring them to life on the page. They can't just be, hi, I'm Teddy Roosevelt. You know everything. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and that's what we were talking about earlier with where the outlining and everything comes in. So actually it starts with the idea. So there have been many times when I've had ideas that I love. I found love. It's got great characters. It's such a great story. But like you're saying, it's probably a magazine story, right? There's not enough there. You have to have so much primary source material that you are drowning it. You think you can never get through it all. That's the only way you get dialogue. You get all those details, you know, that really make you feel like you're there and kind of that you just like sinking into the story and forgetting everything else. And there's no way to do that factually 
without just a ton of primary source material. So A, I start with that. Do I have so much that I think I'll never get through it all? And if I do, then I start, you gather it all as much as you can, right? And then you start to figure out how am I going to tell the story? Because, and I write character sketches, you know, you have to get to know each of these people and what are their motivations and what are their flaws, you know, and what are, what's the danger here? And then you have to try to set things up. So like, for instance, with my book about Garfield, right? So one of the things that I was struggling with there is like, okay, yeah, everybody knows he was assassinated, but you don't really care because it was a long time ago and he was only president for a little bit of time. And isn't he just one of those gilded age presidents? You know, who cares? So my first thing was to show you why you should care. This guy was brilliant and brave and kind and incredibly progressive for the area. It was a huge, tremendous loss to the country. So you have to understand who he was first, right? So I knew that. Also, I wanted you to sense the danger that he could not, right? So I have this guy, Guteau, right? Who's clearly insane, clearly deeply troubled, and he is stalking the president. And so Here's Garfield, he's going by his life and he's like, oh, I don't really want to be president, but okay, I'll do my best, you know, and you're like, you love him, <laughs> you care about him, and you want to say, turn around, turn around, <laughs> you know, this guy is going to kill you, um, but he doesn't know, but you, the reader, do, and so the only way to do that is to work on the outline, right, to set up that structure ahead of time. I mean, it takes me a year just working on the outline. And it, but you know what? It's kind of fun because it's like a puzzle. It's like solving a puzzle, right? And you can move things around that way. And then you don't have to yet worry about things like you're talking about, like, like pacing and word choice and rhythm. Once you know how you're going to tell the story, then you can work on hopefully writing it well. And it doesn't hurt when someone like Winston Churchill shows up on a battlefield with a white pony. So people will notice <laughs> him and you're like, dude, that's exactly. kind of not the point. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Every once in a while, there'll be these like little gifts. You're like, well, thank you very much. I can use that. Yeah. That is crazy. I'll throw that in there. And also, you know, another really great gift that's been given to me with each of these books is each of the main characters was himself an incredible writer. So I can just quote from them all day long. And it makes me look really good. Like, wow, this is so beautifully written. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Winston Churchill wrote that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it is also a way for us to understand how we got where we are. I mean, there's so many pieces of the puzzle. Even if you look at all four books together, actually, mm -hmm. there's a very consistent through line. Yes. It's us yeah. and how we see the world. And That's right. It's what we were talking about earlier about human nature. It doesn't change. And like you were saying, this see this arrogance, you see this recklessness or this determination or whatever. And you, we know people, yeah, that's just like somebody I know. Or but I realized kind of early on when I'm writing, it's like, well, I'm not interested in these moments of triumph, right? When they're at their best and everybody's applauding. I'm interested in the moments of struggle, right? When they are grieving or they are dying or they are scared and they can't figure it out. And that's where you really see someone's character. And that's where we can really connect to them. Because I obviously have nothing in common with Winston Churchill, <laughs> but I understand what he was feeling when he's escaping from the Boers and he's by himself and he's terrified. Yeah, I, I understand that. We know who you are now more as a writer, but who are you as a reader? Who are some of your influences? I've always been a huge, huge reader. In fact, you know, I grew up in this little town in Ohio and I thought I would be a teacher or a librarian, either 
which I would would have loved because I didn't know anybody who was a writer. You know, it didn't honestly occur to me that I could be a writer. I actually read a lot of fiction, but I'm kind of ruthless when it comes to my fiction. You know, I have to either love it. And, and you know, the older, so I'm going to be 55 this summer. And I'm actually quite a while ago, I was like, hey, life is too short. There are too many good books. If I'm reading something, even if everybody else loves it and thinks it's brilliant, if I don't love it, I'm not going to continue. You know, I'm going to I'm going to move on to the next one. With nonfiction, I give it a little more latitude. If I don't love the writing, if I'm still learning something from it, I keep going. But I have a lot, a lot of nonfiction heroes. I mean, I, in my own field of narrative nonfiction, Eric Larson is at the very top. Laura Hillenbrand, Stacey Schiff. Barbara Tuckman. I mean, there, you know, I could just go on and on and on. So they're just like, yeah, a lot of people I really, really admire and always look forward to their next book. Have you started thinking about what's next? I mean, I realize it takes you five years to sort of get up and running, but you know, there is this <laughs> conventional wisdom that maybe you have the next project going as the current one is going out into the world. Well, I do, you know, strangely, I mean, I didn't think I would, it, it usually takes me a long time, but, um, and I haven't written up a proposal, so I, I, I can't really say what it is yet because I don't know if my agent, my editor are going to like it or not, but I think they are because I'm super, super excited about it. Yeah. I just was doing some reading as usually happens and just kind of ran across this and then was able to start just digging in. And, you know, it's one of these things I kept telling myself, I really need to be thinking about this book that's coming out. And I am, and I'm so excited about it. But at the same time, you know, you can't resist a new story and a new idea. And so I've been able to dig enough that I know it has a ton of primary source material. It has a ton of great, great extra characters. It's a great, an unbelievably inspirational, shocking story that I'm so excited to tell. And I'll just say it's set in World War One. <laughs> okay, this all sounds good. <laughs> you can be patient. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I'm we very be excited. About it. <laughs> Before we wrap up, though, what do you want listeners to know about reading and writing history? I mean, it is essentially the heart of what you do. Right. Is right. history. Well, you know, I always say I, I love reading academic histories as well, and it's hugely important. So, and I always say that narrative nonfiction to me is kind of the gateway drug for a lot of people because there are so many people who will come up to me and say, I never liked history. I thought I didn't like history until I started reading you or started reading Eric Larson or Laura Hill, whoever it might be. And I love it. And that is the best thing anybody can say to me. And also then they'll often they'll say, and now I'm reading this full biography of James Garfield, or now I want to know more about this time in history. And so they're going to the deeper um, academic histories. And so I really hope that even people who think they don't like history, I bet you can find some history that you like, you know, because there's so many amazing stories. And, you know, and it's absolutely true. Like so many of these stories, so often I think, if I wrote this in a novel, people would be like, that is ridiculous. That would never happen. You're the worst writer for even dreaming that up. <laughs> you know, they just want to buy it. But when it's real, you know, you can prove I've got all these footnotes. Like, this really happened. That is just amazing, you know, and so fun. And so I just would encourage everybody, if you think you don't like history, you're wrong. You just haven't found the right history. <laughs> and it really is all about the people. 
Yes, it absolutely. Exactly. You're exactly right. It's all about the people. And again, human nature does not change. <laughs> Everything else changes. Human nature does not change. You will always, it doesn't matter how long ago or where this person was or what their life is like. There are things in it you can connect to and you can understand whether you like them or not. Oh, Candace, people have so much to look forward to in River of the Gods. Genius, courage, and betrayal in the search for the source of the Nile. That subtitle is a treat, too. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hello, readers, and welcome to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to grab when you stop in to pick up River of the Gods by Candace Millard. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and this week my buddy Margie is on vacation, so I have a special guest that I plucked from my home store here to talk to to me about books. Erin, hello, and thank you for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much for having me. We all know that talking books is uh, my life's goal. Yes, truly, and I think that you achieve it uh, daily because that's pretty much all we spend our time doing is talking to each other about books and then extending that to our very, very lucky customers. It comes with the territory. Absolutely, and that's why we're here. So uh, we've got a couple books to talk about. I'm going to go ahead and jump in first if you are cool with that. Absolutely. Good, good, good. All right. So the book that I chose is a chili aperitif to River of the Gods. Ooh. I know that was pretty clever. It is called Madhouse at the End of the Earth by Julian Sancton. This was recently one of Barnes & Noble's monthly picks for nonfiction and really just took off very, very well. It's about the voyage of the ship Belgica. And it's not as well known of a journey, but it is truly legendary. Bound for Antarctica in 1897, the ship and its crew get trapped in the ice. They must spend months in the endless night of winter and use whatever they can to survive with their lives and their minds intact. So permanent darkness, close quarters, biting cold. What does it take to break a mind? And can a lost mind ever recover? I think me personally... I wouldn't even have made it to getting trapped in the ice before I truly just had to jump overboard. Uh, (laughs) I cannot stand the cold and I really don't think I would fare well as any kind of pirate or explorer. It's definitely that real life style, like horror story too. Absolutely. So it reminds me of like, uh, like Dan Simmons, the terror, like anybody that's into that historical horror would definitely want to pick this one up. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just a thrilling and chilling story. And it's been used by NASA to research the effects of isolation because let's be real folks. Cabin fever is an actual thing. It's also timely considering that the Shackleton ship was just recently found. So for anyone looking for adventure, pick up Madhouse at the end of the earth by Julian Sancton. Do you have a book for us to talk about today, Erin? Yeah, actually, uh, we were both talking about paper, Paging Through History, um, by the fantastic Mark Kurlansky. Mm. He's known for highlighting simple yet historically essential subjects. We were talking about cod and salt. And this book traces paper's evolution from inception all the way up to present day. In his trademark entertaining and educational approach, Kurlansky shows us how cultures throughout history have shifted from oral to writing tradition, how different societies have produced and retained essential documents and how writing and printing has evolved over time. My topic I really enjoyed was his coverage of technology and the myth that tech changes society. He argues that it kind of works the other way. Society is what changes and technology is developed to meet the evolving needs of the people. 
Um, I think in the 70s, he said that they predicted that there wouldn't be any more paper usage and yes. we'd start moving everything to technology. But I don't know about you, but we're surrounded by paper. Yes, so constantly. That doesn't seem to be the taste. Yeah. Yes, I love it. So if you want to home in on a topic that has a vast influence over our world, any of his books will serve you well. But paper paging through history is a really great place to start. That is a fantastic pick and pretty timely also for Father's Day right around the corner. I think a lot of people will be looking at River of the Gods because it's got that sort of historical adventurous feel. And you and I were talking earlier that it's, this is a great opportunity for folks to get Father's Day gifts that aren't World War II. Yeah, branch out a little bit from your dad's favorite subject. Pick up something a little different. If they like Indiana Jones, they're going to like River of the Gods. Yes, absolutely. Um, if they like the terror, they're going to like Madhouse at the end of the earth. Yes. And if they like, um, you know, potentially boring subjects that become absolutely fascinating, then they should pick up paper or anything by Mark Kalamsky. Absolutely. Ah, great picks all around. But that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to Poured Over. Please rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode and follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester or take a peek at my meager Instagram at bookmark79 and that's B-O-O-C-M-A-R-C because I am a dork. <laughs> And Erin, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Obviously, we have the same home store, but if you're interested in toddlers and or cosplay, you can follow me on Instagram at Clefarin. Yes, it's so much fun. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening and happy reading. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.